There are expectations that are placed on me as a pastor during the season of Advent. There are certain areas of the biblical playground that I am required to play. And if I stray from those, it freaks you out just a little bit. There are certain words that you require me to say to you at some point during the season of Advent. You have got to hear at some point that Caesar Augustus decreed that a census be taken. You have got to hear at some point that there were in that same country shepherds keeping watch over their flock by night. You have got to hear at some point, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. You've got to hear those things or it's not Christmas. And, and if I don't say them, I ruin Christmas for you. But I'm about to ruin Christmas for you in a completely different and exciting way today. I am going to come to that part of Matthew's account of Christmas that we wish did not exist. For most of us, Christmas is over in Matthew as soon as the wise men leave. And as a, fa as a matter of fact, as far as we're concerned, uh, Matthew chapter 2 is over as soon as the wise men leave. We want to jump immediately to chapter 3. But right there, right there at the end of Matthew, in this horrific event that Matthew includes, we don't have something that is outside of Christmas. We have a demonstration of why we need Christmas in the first place. We are going today to look at some uncomfortable words that close out Matthew chapter 2. Take a quick stroll through them and watch these events as they unravel with a mind to why they show us we need Christmas in the first place. I hope you found Matthew chapter 2. We're just going to walk through them together. If you would please join me as I pick up the narrative in verse 13. Now when they, the wise men, had departed, Behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose, and he took the child and his mother by night, and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt, I called my son. And so Joseph is warned, and the child is safe. And then hell on earth. Verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, because remember he said, come back, report to me where the child is, so that I can go and worship him, which was not his intent, but that's what he had hoped the wise men would do for him. When he realized he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. When did the star appear? About 18 months ago? Okay, and that set his parameters for him. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah. Weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. There are no, and I've shared this with you before, there are no outside sources historically that tell us 
about the slaughter of Bethlehem's innocents. But keep this in mind. Bethlehem was a very small and inconsequential village at the time. And given its population, the best estimate that has been made is that the killing would have involved between 6 and 20 children. Now, that's a horrific, ungodly number. But when framed against the murderous reign of King Herod, it wasn't newsworthy. Think about that. This man was a butcher and brutal. He had three of his own sons killed because he perceived them to be threats to his reign and rule. He would, at a whim, execute hundreds at a time. He was an exceptionally wicked, vile, and evil man. And so, with death and murder so ubiquitous, it didn't even show up in the historical record. But Matthew isn't as much concerned with the man Herod here as he is with what drove him to his vile actions, a deep hatred for God's purposes through Christ. Matthew's interested in that motive. And in that sense, Herod's wickedness was simply another in a long line of vehicles driven by Satan in an attempt to unleash Satan's hate-filled assault against God and his saving purposes. The backdrop of this event is literally the entire Old Testament. From the moment in Genesis 3 when God hinted that one day a child would be born who would crush the head of Satan once and for all, he was ruthlessly active in opposing God's plan. We see it in the unbridled wickedness that prompted God's destruction of humanity through the flood, in the corruption of the family saved through that flood, the family of Noah, and in the efforts of mankind to build a tower to the heavens and be like gods themselves at Babel. When God reveals more of his plan to defeat Satan by setting apart Abraham and his descendants, we see Satan work to fatally compromise God's promise to bring salvation through a child of Abraham and Sarah through an immoral bargain for children with a concubine named Hagar. We see Satan's handiwork in the cowardice of Abraham and Sarah's promised son, Isaac, in the dishonesty of their grandson, Jacob, and in the amoral decision-making of their 12 grandsons, which become the patriarchs for the tribes of Israel. And all of this culminates in the enslavement of Abraham's descendants in Egypt. We see it in the rebellion of those descendants after God had rescued them from slavery through Moses and in the rejection of that same God as their king when, as I mentioned last week, they go to the prophet Samuel and said, we want a human king like everyone else. When God further reveals his plan to restore his kingship of Israel, of his people, through a descendant of King David, Satan goes into overdrive attempting to thwart God's plan to defeat him and save us by drawing as many of David's descendants as possible into wickedness and immorality so bad that ultimately God has to judge and destroy the nation that he promised Abraham and Israel essentially becomes an inconsequential geopolitical reality. And of course, 
We see the same desire to thwart God's saving purposes and forestall his destruction in Satan's use of Herod's murderous desire to kill Jesus. My point is that hateful opposition to God's saving purposes through Christ is literally baked into every page of Scripture and every day of your life. When you bend your knee to Jesus as your Savior, you make an announcement to all the enemies of Christ that you are now a target. And that literally means because the entire spiritual realm is an enemy and in rebellion against Christ, that everything that is against Christ is against you. The same kind of murderous desire that Herod manifested exists today against the church. And we wring our hands and we're terrified when it happens. But Peter, who had a front row seat to Christ's life when he was on earth, said this in 1 Peter. 412, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Opposition is the normal Christian life. And this ongoing opposition is seen even when everything appears to be okay. Herod's died. Satan has not been able to take the child's life. But he is never without another channel for his hateful opposition to the purposes of God. Look at verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared and a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought your child's life are dead. And he rose, and he took the child and his mother, and he went to the land of Israel. But then the ominous note... When he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. The opposition continues. And it would grow from there, wouldn't it? We know this. And it would end on a Friday, on a bloody Roman cross. So where's the good news? (laughs) Where's the good news in any of this? It's in the toddler being in Egypt instead of Bethlehem. It's in the child being in Galilee instead of Judea. And the reasons for this are no mere happenstance. The child is alive so he could die to rid the world of evil that callously slaughters innocence. Even, you see, in the darkness of Bethlehem's morning, we see the activity of God, who is relentless to demonstrate his love to the world through Jesus, more relentless than Satan is relentless to demonstrate his hatred for God and hatred for those who are God's through Christ. I want you to notice how at every step of the way, God is not just one step ahead of Satan. 
That would be the very human way to read these verses. He is not one step ahead of Satan. He is using Satan's plans against him to accomplish his will. Look at verse 15. After the warning to go, to flee to Egypt, it says, This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. Not only, you see, was God a step ahead of Satan, he's using those, those plans of Satan to cause Christ to be a fulfillment of what Israel merely pictured in the exodus from slavery. As Israel's exodus from Egypt demonstrated God's purposes to keep his promise to Abraham to make Israel a great nation, Jesus' exodus, if you will, from Egypt is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham to bless all nations through him. This is the point that Matthew is wanting us to get. Now look at verse 23, and he went and lived in a city after being warned not to go to Galilee, or not to go to Judea. He went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Now, it's likely here that Matthew is not referencing a specific passage from the Old Testament as much as he is referencing the Old Testament in general. You, you see this in that he references the prophets, plural, not a single prophet and a single writing. And the point he is likely making here is that Jesus wasn't prophesied to actually be from Nazareth as much as he is using Nazareth and its root meanings to identify Jesus with words in the Hebrew language that describe being called by God and describe being preserved by God. Regardless of his specific intent, Matthew is ultimately showing us that God is using Satan's purposes against him to fulfill his word, to show us that out of the hatred of opposition, God continually demonstrates his commitment to and love for Jesus and his commitment to and love for those who are called by Jesus, the church, to show us that out of satanic hatred, God's people, because of the mercy of God, experience love. And so, today, we have a victory celebration that God calls us to enjoy on a regular basis. It's called communion, which in itself continues that theme of love out of hatred. As you know, the meal itself was the Passover meal, which commemorated God's love rescuing Israel from slavery in Egypt, a meal which Christ, with the hatred of the cross bearing down on him, used to demonstrate God's love in rescuing his people from slavery to sin. Now, it's easy for us with the lights and the greenery and the packages and all of that to kind of push aside the specter of the cross when we think about Jesus. We want to just think about, about the Jesus who is away in the manger. We just want to think about the Jesus who is there all super quiet on a silent night. We want to think about that Jesus but listen to me, the purpose of Christmas was Easter. And if Easter 
doesn't exist, then Christmas is meaningless. The point of everything regarding Jesus' life was to undo the hatred of Satan, of God and his saving purposes, to create a people called the church, called by the name of Jesus, who will exist for eternity, crying out to that baby who lived and died and rose and is coming again, worthy. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. Communion is appropriate at Christmas because it reminds us of why it exists in the first place. And so now, with our minds framed by Scripture, what Christ came to do, to redeem love out of the hatred of opposition against God's saving purposes, let's go to the Lord in prayer.